to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, and when I'm not recording this podcast or writing all about training, nutrition, and endurance sport, I am hopefully outside exploring one of those endurance sports. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm a registered kinesiologist and an endurance coach, and you are here on the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we look at all different types of movements and the people that do them and study them and coach them and and whatever they do with them. And (laughs) well, we apply it back to our own lives. And today we have David Epstein. Yeah, which we're super excited about. He is on to talk about his new book, Range. Um, And when we saw that he came out with this book, that's kind of all about how the best way to get good at one thing is to actually be kind of good at a lot of different things. Uh, We really loved it because when we kind of sat around and came up with this idea for the podcast three years ago, The Consummate Athlete, the idea was, you know, how can you be the kind of person who can jump from, you know, going on a hike one day to maybe going rock climbing with friends the next day and then going for a gravel bike ride the day after that or you know, a bike packing trip followed by a camping trip and maybe throw some kite surfing in there. Well, and I think the important thing is, you know, it's not necessarily that you're going to be, you know, an elite uh, anything necessarily. Um, you know, you're going to have to do whatever that thing you're elite at a, a lot. But a lot of these sports and, and certainly things that like scientific studies, businesses, um, I'm trying to think even just things you study in school are sort of the culmination of combining disciplines, right? And his, his argument is largely around these generalists who sort of have breakthroughs by combining like artificial intelligence with some sort of random sport application, right? Or, um, you know, even just in sports, if you think about, we've talked about the Killarney Trail, which is a running sort of event, but there's a lot of different like strength-based things and then also like filtering water. Let's, and Let's camping. back up and say it's a running event for us, not for like a normal human who right but it's but again that's the point is that we're sort of creating and not that we're doing it but we're you know these sports these mountain sports even are an example of you know you're, you're taking someone who's like really good at mountaineering and combining it with someone who's been doing like you know racing of some type right and and there's all these different sorts gravel racing for bikes um we're talking mm-hmm. about running well heck um, cyclocross is probably the most range-esque discipline of cycling that i can think of yeah and so he talks about how you know whether we're talking about work you know, different things where different experiences and the book has all these great examples of people who have worked in one discipline and then somehow transferred over and, you know, just thought about something differently because they weren't, you know, in that sort of silo of thinking, you know, we're only a cyclist or we're only an engineer, but then someone comes from another sort of area, right? So the book is, is amazing. I don't know if you can hear the excitement in my voice, but I read this very quickly, which yeah. usually is not how I read things. Bearing in mind, the excitement in Peter's voice goes from like zero to one on a scale of zero to 10 in terms of excitement levels, but that was very excited. Uh, We actually also just read Range as the Athletic Bookworms July read over on the OutdoorEdit.com. So So what is that all about? Yeah, that's my monthly book club. We pick a new book every month that's tangentially sports related. Sometimes it's, you know, extremely sport related. Sometimes it's barely sport related and it's well and range is sort of like that exactly and honestly it's really just my excuse to make sure that i stay accountable to reading and i know there's quite a few other people who you know choose their books based on it and then at the end of every month i sort of put together a little wrap-up of kind of the the main takeaways from each book some of the best quotes that i found you know what got me thinking uh, all that kind of stuff so if you go over to the outdooredit.com uh, this week, you'll be able to see sort of what I took away from the book specifically. Okay, so before people, like if the podcast maybe doesn't convince them and they want a little bit more, just sort of book review type. Like, 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you really want to get an idea of exactly what the book is like, not just what the concept is, then definitely pop over there. Right. Um, yeah. And then otherwise, I think we should really just get into this. We start with him talking a lot about youth sport development, which is something that we're both you know, really interested in as coaches. Um, and I know there's a lot of parents who listen out here that you know, could probably really benefit from this. We had Katie Maccarelli on a couple months ago talking about how to get your kid into cycling. And one of the things she talks a bunch about is sort of not forcing your child to sort of specialize in one sport. And in this, David kind of explains why it's a really good idea to let your kid kind of explore a bunch of different things. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, we we do spend a lot of time on that sort of you know, I would say even just the pathway of sort of even towards sporting, elite sport, you know, but I, I think that applies to a lot of things. And we keep, you know, certainly as the podcast goes on, we get into work and school and life choices, and I might have a breakdown in the middle and then come back at the other side. But the amount of midlife crises you have had on this podcast. <laughs> well, I guess that's, that's the nature. It's, it's Absolutely. life. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, definitely hit us up over on Twitter or on the Consummate Athlete website, which is consummateathlete.com. And then we're at Peter Glassford and at Molly J. Herford on Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Let us know what you liked about it. You know, maybe even use the, I think it's the Overdrive app that I've been using to share little bits and pieces from podcasts that I'm really liking. Oh, right. You can pull out those fancy links and use it for Instagram posts. Exactly. Well, let's, uh, let's get into it. Enjoy this conversation with David Epstein. David Epstein, welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Thank you for having me. And we're very excited because you've your your latest book, uh, Range, is in, in my opinion at least, you know, the Consummate Athlete's official handbook. I don't know if we can say <laughs> it, unofficial official handbook. Yeah. And so we do recommend this. Um, and you should by the end of the podcast, it should be evident why. Um, but thank you for writing that and for taking your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We often start with um, just having our guests sort of describe sort of their, you know, sporting life, I guess, and that can be present or sort of how you got to where you are, um, just to sort of give us a feel, especially when people have sort of a bit of a varied background, but just sort of see where you're coming from as far as a sport, uh, from a sport perspective. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have to worry about sort of, you know, youth specialization in sports, some of the things I write about, because like nobody in my family was really dead into sports. Um, But I was like fanatical as a kid. So I still remember in middle school, I would wake up at, you know, these were the days when it was like Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann on SportsCenter. And I would wake up at like 5am to watch the same half hour segment play twice in a row. Um, which like you couldn't get me up to do something like that for anything now. Um, but I, I was football, basketball, baseball, you know, a little bit of soccer, some martial arts. Like I, I did kind of everything when I was a kid and even into high school, um, I played football, basketball, baseball. I ran cross country a season when I broke my arm playing football. Um, and actually eventually later came to track because I wanted to kind of stay in shape for, for football and really took to it um, and ended up, you know, ending high school doing track and then did that all through college and then for a year post-collegiately um, as a middle distance runner. So uh, never having had running sort of being high in my mind except for the running that was done in other sports until I was sort of a late teenager, it then then took off for me and became, you know, one of the most useful skills I've learned in my entire life, honestly. Uh, so. So I, I still do a lot of that today, although although I might call what I do today jogging compared to the running I used to do. But um, right. yeah, but it's still a big, very important part of my life. 
your parents sound like very nice people to have to take you to that many practices as a kid. Well, I think, you know, there was like with with high school, obviously, you're already there and actually like lived fairly close to stuff and had, you know, I I would bike to a lot of stuff. Like, I don't know if that's I feel like I was allowed to bike to sports stuff at an age where now people would sort of raise an eyebrow if they saw a little kid biking on their own. But that was like, no, no problem. So I was like constantly biking to stuff, you know, like a little scooter, Um, you know, and it was like no problem to use that stuff around. And sometimes it was biking with a group of other kids. And so I was like biking all over the place. Okay, so this is really interesting. If you were so into sports and then you ended up writing at Sports Illustrated eventually, you kind of took a detour with what you studied in college because it seems like Just you, a bit. you were kind of on the track towards, you know, sports management or sports journalism or well, exercise also, science. But then also you have an environmental yeah. science degree, right, too. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's some range there, I guess. Yeah, there's some well, well played. Um, yeah, you know, I've taken a lot of detours and I, I've gotten like almost linearly less long-term goal directed since I was a teenager and I've realized like all the most important projects to me have not come out of things that I ever foresaw from far away. Um, and so like when I was a teenager, I, 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 you know, I was competitive and I, I was dead set on going to the air force Academy and being a test pilot and an astronaut and, um, you know, got the congressional, uh, recommendation and did the physical tests and all that stuff. Remember having to throw a basketball from my knees, which in retrospect seems like a really weird physical test, but, um, at the last second, I sort of decided not to do that. And um, I, I went to college and thought I was going to study political science. Actually, that wasn't a great fit. And honestly, here's here's another place where running features importantly in my life. Um, I was a walk-on 800-meter runner in college. And I became really good friends with the best 800-meter runner on the team who was a senior. And he was a biomedical engineer. And I remember him telling me, like, hey, you know, our college is leasing this campus out in Arizona. I went to school in New York. Um out in Arizona, like you got to go out there. It's amazing. And I'm like, well, why would I, you know, why would I do that? And like spend a summer in the desert. And he convinced me because one, he's like, you'll get some mild altitude training. And two, you can take a class out there. So you'll have a lighter course load during track season. And I'm like sold. All right, great. And so I go out there and I'm just totally blown away. Take a geology class. You know, it's all of a sudden I've grown up in city and it's like, you're seeing life spread out horizontally, you know, clinging to its vein of water. And, you know, I'm running in, in kind of s- scenic areas that I've, I've never sort of experienced before. And I was like, whatever I have to study to, to get more of this, you know, and I got interested in how did this like basin and range system in Arizona, how, how did the earth systems work? And so I end up majoring in geology, picking up astronomy later because I come back to Arizona for another summer. Um, and, uh, was planning to be a scientist. So I started grad school in geological sciences and, it was, again, another thing from running. That, and this one, I have to, you know, disclaimer, there's a sad part to this story. So just to give that heads up before I go, was one of my former training partners and closest friends uh, dropped dead at the end of a race after a mile. He was one of the top-ranked guys for his age group in the country. And I sort of wondered, how could that happen? Um, and people were saying he had a heart attack. And I'm like, what does that even mean for someone like this? And so... I gathered up a waiver, his, his family signed a waiver allowing me to gather up his medical records and I, you know, sort of investigated. It turned out he had died from this disease caused by a single gene mutation that's commonly misdiagnosed. And, you know, as time went on, I decided I wanted to raise awareness about this. And so when I was a grad student, you know, I was in a tent in the Arctic when I made the final decision that I want to write, merge my interests in sports and science and write about sudden cardiac death in athletes for a broad popular audience and I'd grown up reading Sports Illustrated so that sort of became my proximate goal to write about sudden cardiac athletes su- death sudden death and car- sudden cardiac death in athletes um 
for SI. And, and in fact, that is, that is what I did a few years later and became the science writer at Sports Illustrated. So it was really a merger, you know, taking these my sort of ordinary science skills and bringing them to a sports magazine where suddenly they were extraordinary, which really uh, kind of carved out a career for me. Yeah, and I think that that science background is so valuable in in journalism and being able to, you know, look at studies now and and be able to write about it. Um, I actually, I kind of had this as a maybe a side question, but this seems like it works really well. Um, You talked about the Fermi estimation and how it can cut through bullshit. And I was wondering if you could kind of speak to you know, with with sports journalism and especially, you know, sports medicine writing, how can athletes read all of these, you know, things that come out that are about new trends and, oh, this study says, and it's, you know, a sample size of five. Um, yeah. Is, you know, any advice for athletes who are just so inundated by, by this information, how they can cut through the bullshit? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think there are multiple levels of ways to do that, depending on sort of, you know, what time and inclination they have to go after that stuff. But so there, sir, there are certain things that I think are, are like the top level decision making heuristic for cutting through the bullshit, which are um, f- seeing if people like Christy Ashwanden and Alex Hutchinson have written about them. Right. Because mm-hmm. if if so, that, that would be like my first level of thing, because that that's like the quickest way uh, to, to get to Christy was until recently writer at 538 and and Alex writes it outside but they both do a lot of writing on their own you know and they both have have books about sports science out recently so you know or or maybe if you know in the past maybe I would have said look out if I if I've written about it as well but I'm not doing that as often now so I think that's a that's a first line um the other thing to do, I think the next line, again, I'm giving sort of the easiest, the lowest hanging fruit answers here, is to look at people like that, you know, on Twitter or people like Mike Joyner of the Mayo Clinic, if they've been commenting on it. Or or Mike is someone that if you get interested in a study, like tweet it at him and he will for sure respond. And he's, you know, he's a physiologist and a human performance expert. So I think those are sort of some of the top line things. If you're actually looking at the studies yourself, I think y- the most important thing you can probably do is get some understanding of effect sizes um and there are places you know you can you can do that online because so many of the studies you'll see this blaring headline and then you go look at the study and realize that the effect size is so insignificant that like you know either it's a false positive because if it's a smaller study with a small effect size they probably didn't actually detect something real or you don't care anyway Mm-hmm. because the effect size is so small and it's swamped by all the other things you could be doing. And that is, I would say, the majority of the studies. Um, so so I think, you know, go look at that. Like if you see, if you see a, a, you know, a like D equals something, that's telling you the, the number of standard deviations that um, this, this effect has in moving you toward like whatever they're testing for. So if it's like, some really, really small number, 0.0 something, whatever, I would just like stop reading that study and like move on. You, there's nothing practical application for you basically. Um, so so those are sort of multiple levels of, of heuristics there. Like obviously the best thing would be like get some science, you know, education or whatever and follow the literature. But I think that's probably not the most realistic for most people. Mm-hmm. Are there any, any headlines that have been driving you kind of crazy on this front lately? I, I have to ask. Oh yeah, I mean constantly. There was that one recently about like – the microbiome of endurance athletes and i think that was like way overblown i mean there's one of the problems with stuff about the microbiome um is 
that that area is suffering from like a huge amount of, of false positives because of some of the methodology, right? Where there'll be like a small study and the gut um, microbiome of different people will be compared. And oftentimes the way that's being done is is effectively causing this, actually the scientists are doing many, many different tests because they're looking for like differences in, um, you know, in, in gut microbes and they're going to find something and they're not realizing that like you need more statistical rigor if you 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 didn't instead of coming in with a certain hypothesis of this microbe is going to be different they'll just look for differences and when you do exploratory analyses like that you are subject to a huge number of false positives and i think that's a lot of what's going on in microbiome research not all of it by any means but a lot of it and especially a lot of it that's sort of tailored at looking at at health and performance Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a difficult thing for people to reconcile for sure. It's just, you know, studies like that where they've sort of just thrown a bunch of stuff and seen what sort of stuck to the wall. And that might be something that in the future they could show, right? But essentially that's what you're yeah. describing with that, right? That's like, is that like a hindsight bias or what is that called? That's a. Yeah, no, exactly. And you mentioned that. That's right. So exploratory analysis is good, but then you have to then you have to do the, the experiment again where you try to prove that pro, prospectively instead of retrospectively. Um, and so there's been a move in science for what's called pre-registration of hypotheses where someone has to go register the hypothesis they're actually trying to test before they do the study so they can't retrospectively then say, you know, oh, we found this thing. And if you look at NIH required that for certain types of clinical trials and then the proportion of, of positive trials plummeted after they required pre-registration. Um, because, you know, suddenly you're realizing people were just like retrofitting their hypothesis to something that popped out of the data, which gives you this incredible, um, you know, high likelihood of of finding a false positive, especially in the era of big data where you can collect so much data, toss it into a spreadsheet, run a data analysis. And that, and sometimes scientists will think of that as having done one test, but actually you might be doing like a million depending on how you're doing the data analysis. And, and, and quite frankly, I, I confess in range that I now think the, the research I published for my master's degree is false because I did that exact same thing. Like had a huge, huge store of data, ran some statistical analyses, stuff pops out as statistically significant. I didn't understand the underlying process when I was hitting the button on that stats program, what it was actually doing. And so, so my own research was probably, uh, I'm almost positive. It's just false positive because the same issues we're talking about. Yeah. I think, I think that's useful. I think, um, I, I guess the other thing for the the everyday person trying to make sense of like coffee is going to kill you. And so is red beef <laughs> or red yeah. meat. And then the next week it's the, you know, everyone should be just only eating red meat or something. Oh, you know, the, the great paper on that, John Ioannidis, everything in your fridge causes and prevents cancer. Um, where he, <laughs> well, exactly. He looks at, yeah. I mean, that's another thing you look at if John Ioannidis has written about it, right? He, so he's, he's like the best methodological gadfly. I, I will say though, in that paper where he shows like, all the studies on different foods and whether they cause and prevent. And, and I think the one thing that only caused was bacon. Um, so, yeah, I know. I know. Well, that's really disappointing. I, I might have to edit that one out. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So we, we, this, this will be like making our retrospective hypothesis, right? You're going to just edit out the data you don't like. So, yeah, you know, exactly. go ahead and be part of the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt there. That just, that just, and that's such a good paper and it's freely available online. So that is awesome. Yeah. We'll try and find that one and link to it. Um, yeah, but I think all of this stuff is just sort of leading us towards, right? And I think this, the studies are meant to guide, you know, sort of future things that, you know, like we're we're, we're pretty sure smoking's bad, right? And, and there was like a whole, that took a while, maybe too long, but, you know, we sort of like 
mechanism and then went through and sort of, you know, double mm-hmm. blinding and everything else. Right. And it's like mm-hmm. fa- fairly obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of this other stuff is very much in the early stage of like, it seemed like in these certain things, this is what was happening. Um, but you know, short term, smaller samples. Yeah. Um, and I think that's hard, you know, everyone wants that, like, this is the answer. Definitely. Definitely. And, and also with smoking, right? The, so the effect size of smoking at a population level on, on deaths from cancer is enormous. Like if you go to the American Cancer Society, they, every year they do stats. And if you look at like total cancer deaths, you'll see that, um, lung cancer, lung and throat, you know, cancers related to smoking dwarf all the other ones combined. And so you realize like how much, you know, that we could prevent a huge amount of cancer if we lower smoking rates just a little bit. The problem is there's a 20-year lag period. So if you look at graphs of smoking rates and and deaths from cancer, they're like look extremely similar but with a 20-year lag. So it, it takes time to show up, which is obviously not ideal for um, that kind of decision making. But but I think for most people, like don't don't get – it's sort of like investment advice that people get. Don't get like whipsawed by headlines. You know, you know the principles of food, right? Like, try to eat real food, um, and and so don't don't go crazy with the uh, with every successive headline. Right, and I think you know that's almost a segue. You know, in terms of a twenty year lag time, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about you know, the early sports specialization. And, and I think even, you know, we can relate that to choosing your, your major. And, and I think you also compared that to sort of dating and, and sort of finding your, hmm. your spouse or, or friends or whatever. But the, the idea of sampling when we're younger and the problem is, you know, we don't know the, the end thing. We don't know that, you know, right. that we're going to have David Epstein from someone who's studying geology. Right. Right. Um, so, I guess my question is then, you know, as parents were going through and, you know, we have all these like, you know, basketball and, you know, hockey all year round and this sort of mm-hmm. stuff. And we want to have kids on ice all the time. You know, how do we, this is a Canadian example. I was going to say obviously. that was so Canadian. Um, <laughs> uh, how, how do you reconcile that? I guess, I, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, two, two things that I think since they're so recent, it'd be cool to point people toward our. You know, and and you reminded me when you said Canadian because I was just talking about this with with Steve Nash, um, the you know who didn't touch a basketball until he was thirteen, uh, played a bunch of other sports and went on to become the um, two time NBA MVP and he's Canadian. Um, and we had we both watched this HBO Real Sports special about talent of sport development in Norway recently, and we're like so excited about it because Norway like exploded the last Winter Olympics. You know, right. it was probably the best. Um, single country performance maybe in any Olympics ever and the HBO Real Sports looks at their development and basically they have kids doing like all this broad stuff they, they, they sort of like got rid of what we would see as formal competition here before the age of 12 and they have kids doing general physical literacy and all this other stuff and clearly it's not hampering their development so that was great and then just out yesterday is this first part of this ESPN series looking at this like incredible rates of breakdown of young players in the NBA and and how it relates you know and and or their orthopedic surgeons seeing you know these injuries that they used to see in 40 year olds now in 18 year olds and that kind of deterioration and so i think there's some really you know some some compelling evidence building around this case i think part of the problem is um and i think there are two points i, I want to make here so so part of the problem is um some I think there are systems that are forcing kids sometimes to specialize even if 
it, even if we know it's not optimal development, right? I, I lived in Brooklyn in New York until recently, and there was a U7 travel soccer team that met at a at a park near me. And I don't think there's a single human being in the world who thinks six-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city of nine million people that they have to travel, okay? Um, but those kids are customers for that league. And whoever runs it and has that financial interest doesn't care how they are as 20-year-olds, right? And just wants to keep those customers from other uh, from other sports. So I think that can be a really hard thing for parents to engage in. But I think I think there are places that get the best of both worlds like france overhauled its soccer development france has won the the last men's world cup overhauled its soccer development pipeline decades ago to say okay we know kids are going to come into this sport early and want to specialize in it so how can we do that while still getting the benefits that we know come from this this broad athletic base and so they will have kids in the pipeline but they'll do like what the kids in Brazil do, where if you go to Brazil, you see kids are, aren't even playing soccer. They're playing futsal. Small ball stays close to the ground. They're playing on sand one day, cobblestones the next day, you know, over a, a you know, on a tennis court over the net with different one day with different numbers of players. And so they're still, you know, playing something with their feet and a ball, but they're really varying the challenges up, um, you know, almost on a daily basis. And so my hope is that we can have programs that capture some of the benefits of diversity, even if people are restricted to a single sport, because I think it's more about the diversity of the physical challenges um, that you face and the and the diversity of movement that you face, as opposed to, you know, putting on a jersey from from another sport, basically. Yeah, it's inter- interesting. You brought up uh, Norway, uh, and you know, certainly cross country skiing was a it was Norway, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and their cross country skiing and, you know, just their winter sport dominance. And on the news, I seem to recall that they were like highlighting, like, and, and it's certainly part of it, you know, it's just part of their culture that they cross country ski a lot and they have all these trails that are lit yeah. part of the night. Yep. And uh, we had Steven Seiler on, uh, and he obviously knows a lot about that area. And um, he, we were, I was asking him sort of like, is that, is there preparation for skiing? Because cross-country skiing, they can't ski a lot of the year. So there's a lot of cross-training, a lot of striding, a lot of hiking, you know, running, uh, mm-hmm. biking and stuff. And I was like, well, do you think that that's an indication then that like actually this, you know, uh, for my own uh, purposes, we'll call it the consummate athlete sort of approach. Do you think that this is uh, worthwhile? And he wasn't so sure that like there wasn't like the spe- the specificity wasn't important and I think it depends who you're talking to, perhaps. But do you think that's maybe part? Is that is that what you saw when you were, were thinking of Norway and sort of that that winter sport? I mean, it it depends on the age we're talking about, right? I think early exposure, by the way, I think is great. Um, but I think it's clear that they are not early specializing kids in any sport at all, right. okay. and are still doing incredibly well. You you absolutely need specificity, but. Um, there are kids that are specializing much earlier than the Norwegian kids in the sports that, that the Norwegians are then destroying them in, um, including kids in the United States. So uh, I definitely think you need that specificity um, eventually. And, and that early exposure is great, but that um, the evidence really testifies to the benefits of diversity early on. Mm-hmm. So how can parents stay above the the fray in all of this because of the temptation to put kids in all of these, you know, exclusive VIP programs is, 
you know, huge. I was coaching cross country for the high school um, last fall. And I think half the kids, like all of the good kids, quote unquote, on the team were also on club teams and leaving practice to go to their club team practice. And that was their life. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't know. I think parents are in a tough spot. I think there are other countries that have a more holistic development pipeline where this is easier for them because unlike in the US where we're we're sort of more balkanized about this. So it's like if the coach of the 10-year-olds if their only incentive is to make the best 10-year-olds, then they're going to do things that aren't the best for the 20-year-olds, you know, because that's that's only their incentive. But there's there's some other places that that aren't like that. Um so what can they do? You know, I think and and by the way, this gets to we, so we'll continue on our Canada kick here. Um researcher Jean Cote, a sports scientist in Canada, has has made these interesting findings when he looks at the odds ratios of someone becoming an elite athlete based on the size of the city they grew up in. Um so the odds ratio, you know, if it's three, then that means you're three times as likely as normal to to become an elite athlete in a given sport. And what he's found is that the odds ratios have been getting really high in small towns and he's gone around and profiled some of these towns and what he finds is that they are the towns that are small enough that that you don't have to specialize to be you know just make the 12 year old team basically so you can sport sample early on before specializing and that's where most elite athletes are coming from now and so his his sort of conclusion is that with this well-intentioned push toward giving kids a head start we've actually you know made sure that we have these great 10 year old teams um, but made sure that that the elite athletes don't tend to come from those places anymore, from the places that have like the really competitive youth teams. And so I think that's sort of telling. And but what's the advice there? Like tell parents to move out to smaller towns. Um, like that's probably not great advice. So I think, but but I I think the small town is just a proxy for the kind of developmental environment. It doesn't actually matter that's small. So so I guess my advice would be to try to look for these programs that even if you aren't an individual sport are um, encompassing some of the best principles of, you know, physical literacy and, and movement diversity. So Judy Murray is a great example, mother of Andy and Jamie Murray, uh, the tennis players, where she has a camp and parents feel comfortable taking their kids out of, you know, the other development pipelines to give them to Judy Murray because of, you know, because of her name, because she's Andy and Jamie's mother. And then she'll have them doing stuff like they're playing tennis, but they're playing through tree branches. So they're doing all these other types of games. They're doing stuff with a racket and a ball. So the the parents are sort of appeased that it's tennis-like, but it's still incorporating this incredible amount of diversity. And so I, so I think look for programs like that. And, you know, to that end, w- one of the things Steve Nash was talking about was exploring starting an academy um, that that embraces these principles for the same reason as Judy Murray is he knows that his name will carry the weight to make parents feel okay to do what basically the evidence says they should do. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I did want to ask you on that same line of thinking about sort of the small towns. Um, you know, we have clusters and I'm sure you can name places through New York and stuff with lacrosse or different things like that, where it does seem like, you know, a, a majority of the athletes, um, come from that area and, and they're not always like the, it's not new york city uh, but it'd be like this town right and it seems like hometown ends up mm-hmm. being and there seems to be a disproportionate number of athletes maybe from that area do you mm-hmm. think that that's like do you think that's as much hindsight bias as anything to do with the area or do you think there's clusters based on the programs or the I, for mountain biking i feel like some of it's like the terrain and just like what's available um for, I mean, for sure, what's available is is a huge influence, right? Like, there's you know, there's a reason 
like a ton of the U.S. Winter Olympians come from northern Minnesota and Salt Lake City, you know, because you have to have access to the sports. And the sure. fact is most people in the world don't have access to, to most sports. Um, I think it's I think it's hindsight bias in terms of our awareness of it. But in someone like Jean's work, he's, you know, he's looking at data in a more comprehensive way. So I don't think it's as much hindsight bias there. And there's a ton of natural variation. But um, but I think there are some places that that for certain reasons, and, and some researchers in Australia have seen this too, where they've seen the same thing where the odds ratios have been tending toward the the smaller towns, but also there are pockets within some of the bigger cities where they'll they'll see these same things and and feel that it is also, you know, part of the part of the development there. Um, and so but I think you know, I think if you were talking about elite athletes, I think the single most important thing for getting elite athletes is like marketing a sport and getting as many people you can as you possibly can to try it and um you know people will have a, bring a lot of different developmental experiences to it and some people will come out so that that's basically what we do in the u.s right where we don't have to be efficient like norway because we have so many athletes like right the the u.s ncaa system probably supports more young adults in serious training and track and field than the rest of the world combined and so we don't really have to optimize development we can just like throw everyone into the into the funnel and, and take who comes out yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's maybe where there's a bit of that, like Norway, just like they're supporting, you know, having facility to go cross country skiing, you know, so then families are going cross country skiing, um, you know, kids can go cross country skiing. I assume that happens. They just go on their own and stuff. And you talked about even just your family had you by happenstance as much as on purpose, probably just in a location that you could access this stuff whenever you wanted, right? Yep. Yep. Um, and I think that's a lot of it is like if, if the kid's able to go and do that stuff, um, you know, fairly easily and, and if they enjoy it or not, like they'll sample, I guess on their own, but yeah. Um, your story sounds a lot like mine was similar. Like I was just able to ride my bike in all different ways. We would build dirt jumps, but we could also go like trail ride or road ride. And my parents didn't even have to be involved most of the time. Yeah, I mean, that that's another thing. Like, part of specialization, sometimes if I say, you know, specializing, people think that means, well, if you want to be a tennis player, you shouldn't play tennis early. And that that's not what it means at all. You, you, you want to have early exposure for sure. But you also see, like, so after Germany won, uh, the German men won the World Cup in 2014, there was a study out that tracked development of players in different levels in Germany. And what they found was that the players who went on to the national team um, – played a lot of soccer, but early on it was mostly an unstructured way, you know, athlete-led way. Um, and not until they were 22 did they spend more time in technical training than athletes who plateaued at lower levels. And the athletes who plateaued at lower levels tended to be in the technical training earlier and not have nearly as much of that, you know, sort of self-led um, kind of play. And that's the same. So, so again, France, they noticed that. And so one of the guys, Ludovic Debru, who helped um, – design their pipeline has this saying there's no remote control and what he means is the, the coaches shouldn't be trying to micromanage the players when they're younger and so they've limited the times the coaches are allowed to talk to the players and things like that so again it's incorporating those principles um you know even within a given sport but but i also wonder when you mentioned like we were riding our bikes around you know i see i see kids now they're like spending more time traveling than they are like doing anything athletic anyway and i'm not really sure what sense that makes or or and that probably is not so much fun for parents either, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Like I'll have, like I coach cycling is sort of my, my job, I guess. And 
yeah, it's tough, right, to reconcile, like, okay, we're going to ride for an hour or so, you know, everyone's coming to this center to ride, you know, versus going and riding locally or exploring, like, there's maybe a place to ride locally um, for the same or more time. Without a two-hour drive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just tough. I don't know. And again, like you say, it's it's tough on parents because you can't just, if you let your kid just ride, I guess you get in trouble now or something, right? So it's... yeah. Yeah, when I had this one, like, sorry, go ahead, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no, no. Oh, um, when, so I've had these two sort of panels, well, one was a debate, and then one was just discussion with Malcolm Gladwell at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, that are both on YouTube, and he said, we were talking about this, and he said, I have a rule that the travel time to um, an event shouldn't exceed the time of the event itself, and I'm like, that that seems like a good rule in some ways, except for, like, you know, he's a miler. So that would not be good for people who run the mile because then <laughs> yeah. like you could only get down the block. Um, right. but, but I get what he's saying. You know, I think it's interesting. And, and speaking of cycling, cycling specifically, you know, Ian Yates, who was, um, you know, sports scientist and coach who's been involved with a lot of different sports in the UK and like revitalizing them and, and, you know, and lead up to some of their, their recent excellent Olympic performances. Um, he was actually working with UK cycling, which of course like had a, had a big turnaround, when I talked to him at one point, he said he was having parents coming in, um, you know, parents of 12-year-olds telling him, like, demanding that their kid do what the Olympians were doing right now as opposed to what the Olympians were doing when they were 12. So it's just sort of this, like, misunderstanding of how development works. Right, right, which is tough, right, because you see things on YouTube or whatever. Um, yeah. And you want to go, um, you know, and do those big Tour de France miles or whatever, right? You know, meanwhile, yeah. forgetting that, you know, we could all just go and have fun riding around for an hour or two and probably get, you know, that next step in the pathway for that 12 year old. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of those, a lot of those, those top cyclists he was working with, I know he said, at least when they were younger, they were doing like some mountain biking and some BMX, like lots of different stuff. Right. You know, they right. weren't, they weren't starting on what they ended in right away. Right. And you, in both cases, like the, they had ridden a bike. It wasn't like it was new to them. Right. But, right. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. It's, it's interesting. I like the, the rule of the driving thing. Um, it comes to mind, like when I actually met Molly, who's my wife, um, I flew to China, which was a 12 hour flight and raced for a single hour. Um, and then we had to fly back, but I did end up meeting my wife. So in the case of, you know, you don't know where things are going to go. <laughs> in that case, I've changed my mind. You know, you should travel as far as you possibly can. <laughs> right. Um, really, no matter really what the broadening the, broadening the sample dating pool yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, I mean, so if they're, you know, if they're, if, if it's a combination of competition and, and dating, then like, I, I think right. the principles maybe change a little. Yes. You could have just driven eight hours the next weekend, Peter. That, I, that I was guess. on you. Yeah, it would only be eight, yeah. <laughs> to race an hour, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's cycling. Um, so I, I could keep talking about kids and early specialization, I think, the whole episode. But I think we also wanted to talk about the idea of range for adults who maybe are you know, stuck in sort of, yeah. you know, there's so many adults who get in that pattern of they exercise four or five times a week, mm -hmm. probably in one sport, you know, you go out and you do your, your 45 minute run five times a week, you go the mm -hmm. same pace, you hit the same trail. I'm super guilty of this, <laughs> but I think we should, you know, we should kind of get to those people a little bit. So yeah. one, one thing we both really liked from the book is are you talking about the, uh, uh, I think it was sampling Saturdays is is what you called it. Um, so it was, we were kind of hoping you could talk about that as as it applies to potentially athletes. 
Yeah, Saturday morning experiments is probably, yeah. probably the one you're thinking of. Yes, and and exactly. I should I should give credit where credit's due. That that is a phrase coined by, well, the Nobel laureate Oliver Smithies, um, who he would. And he used that because he said he, most of his important work occurred on Saturdays because he would go in when there was no one there. And he, he felt that you didn't have to be totally rational and could actually explore your interests and, and try other people's equipment and all this sort of stuff. And so he was, you know, he said people would ask him why he went to work any other day because that's when all of his breakthroughs came. And, and so he was talking about, you know, science and creativity. But I think that that really applies, right? There's nothing – I mean, first thing first it's better to be doing physical activity than not to be doing physical activity, even if that means you're doing the same things over and over. Right. Um, for sure. But you know, there's also the fact that if you want physiological adaptation, then like going to the gym and lifting the same weights, the same number of times every day might prevent you from falling backward, but it also isn't causing, you know, any kind of, kind of adaptation and, and, you know, because you adjust, you, you adapt to being able to do that thing much more easily and efficiently. Um, and like most things we do, we sort of get in ruts of competence, where when we become really competent and comfortable at something, we sort of stop looking outside uh, for, for ways that we can pr- improve. And I've, I've been guilty of that, and, and it ended up kind of doing something off my normal writing path that really helped with this book. But um, So first of all, I think it's important for people to do things that they will be consistent with, right? But also sometimes to try different things. And you, there's a lot of evidence that you become less fragile as an athlete, which is important as you get older, right? Lots of people – I hear from lots of people who are older and they were active and they basically stopped because they had some injury. And they decide that that injury like was the symbol of them like physically expiring and they just can't do this stuff anymore. And I've had that feeling too sometimes when I get injured. I'm just like, that's it. I, I just aged. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to get back. But – then you do your PT or whatever, and you're back. And it's like you never were injured. And I look at this data. Like I should have included this. I'm going to write this down because maybe I'll put it in the afterwards <laughs> when I go to the paperback. Because I spent some time with the physiologist at Cirque du Soleil. And they had this program where they decided to try, like looking at some of the you know data that was accumulating, where they would take multiple perf- – they would take their performers, right? And some of these performers are Olympic athletes from gymnastics and um, – uh, trampoline and occasionally like weightlifting. Um, and they're, you know, they do tons of shows a year. Like these are really valuable, like really elite athletes. And they decided to take some of them and have them learn the basics of like three other types of performers disciplines, not because they were ever going to perform them, but just to see if it would have an impact on their fragility. And that they found they, they track their, so again, we're, this is like the All Canada Show. It's a Canadian company, and they track their injury rates next to compared to Canadian gymnastics, and they found they had about a thirty percent reduction in their injury rates oh, wow. from doing this. Just you know, having people, yeah, yeah, exactly. And and th- these are so then they implemented it at the National Circus School, where they get a lot of their, you know, their performers develop there. And so if you think of that, like these are performers who can't afford to make much in the way of mistakes who are you know in front of people constantly if they feel something is so valuable that they're willing to take away time from what those performers are are you know normally doing they must they must really believe in it and and I think they had the results to show it and we should keep that in mind because one I think it's always good to change things up just because you know you do adapt and become so efficient at the things you're used to doing and you know we know this from things like periodization um you know you, you want to change up what you're doing but also maybe it keeps you mentally fresh but i think there's really an impact on on fragility and that we should try to change the way people think about aging because i think quite honestly 
um, people's idea of sort of how athletes expire is just simply not true. And most of it comes from, you know, either seeing elite athletes who, who retire, but from in many cases that's, you know, doesn't have anything to do with their actual physical expiration date. Um, or people get injured and they feel like that that's it. You know, my, um, I ran too much and now my knees are gone, but then you zoom out and look at data of like osteoarthritis, uh, in knees, in people who run and people who don't. And it's, it's much more prevalent in people who don't. Um, but that, that message is not as intuitive and doesn't really come across. So, um, yeah, those are some of the things I, I, I think about in, with respect to, uh, to athletes as, as we age and, and just not thinking of injuries as having expired, because if you do the kind of strengthening, you know, and, and that you need to do to correct those things, you'll be back and it'll be like you were never injured. Yeah. Did you, did you shy away from like, I can understand why you might, but from putting more of the sort of health based stuff into the the book? I I, I did. I, I had written about some of that before. So like, I had written a story at Sports Illustrated about, for example, there was this epidemic in hockey of torn labrums in the hip that was causing all these other injuries because it can be difficult to diagnose because you don't have, you know, nerves in your in your labrum. And that was often coming from kids were learning butterfly style uh, goaltending right. yeah. um, when they were really young. And ne- never mind that the best butterfly goaltender, Patrick Waugh, didn't even try it until he was already a pro. But right. um so, you know, I was talking to surgeons who were getting 20-somethings ready for hip replacements or seeing arthritis, you know, in like late teenagers in their hips and stuff. And so I'd written about that. And, and Niru Jayanti, uh, a doctor who did this longitudinal study of youth athletes and found that the best predictor of a young athlete, you know, these were these were teenagers and down suffering an adult-style overuse injury, meaning like one that might affect their life or career for a, a long time, was – if they were specialized. Um, so nine or more months a year playing the same sport. And this didn't mean they had to play less sports, but there was some protective effect of diversifying, which was interesting. So it didn't mean necessarily you just have to do less and you have to, you have to broaden. And interestingly, he found that another good predictor was socioeconomic status where better off families were more likely to have a kid who suffered, um, an adult style of reduce injury. So it's like the rare health epidemic that hits people who are well off, um, because they can afford those travel teams and all that kind of stuff. And I knew this stuff, but, um, oh, last one, you know, there's one third of major league pitchers now have had Tommy John surgery and they're pitching less than ever. And I know Struan Coleman, who's, who's one of the surgeons, uh, for major league baseball players who researches this, thinks it's set up by these micro tears in the ligament when they're younger, when they're throwing too much. Um, but I decided to stay away from that because having written about this sort of stuff and talked about it sometimes, my feeling was that for parents specifically, and in many cases for athletes also, uh, it wasn't that influential. That like you, that they were much more interested in performance message message than health message. And we can see that in certain things, right? Like if um, health were the number one priority for parents, then um, you know we we wouldn't have youth football, right? Where people are running into each other with helmets. But I think the performance message, my my feeling was that that is what really reaches people. And so I sort of wanted to stay away from, you know, the mental health and the physical health because I thought the performance message was a little more rare. And, and I wanted that to be front and center just because of the experience I've had with, 
with the responses I would get when I would write about the health aspects. That makes sense. And I think it's sort of a sneaky way of getting people in, right? <laughs> like all that other stuff, the mental health that should follow if, you know, performance is, is reasonable, good, and people are able to do what they want to do, you know, yeah. better or with more, more health, right? And with less injury. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I like that. Um, I'm trying to think here where we want to go from here. Uh, the, you, you talk a little bit, you know, what's sort of, implicit i guess in some of this of sampling things is that you're going to end up being a beginner quote unquote um in different things so whether you're going taking different courses or you know playing around with something completely new in sport or at work or or whatever um the one quote that i i had highlighted was and i think it's someone you were talking about in the book used it but you have to carry a big basket to bring something home Hmm. Um, in terms of, you know, I, I thought immediately about like going to a course or, you know, getting instruction and thinking, oh, this instructor yeah. is not very good. Right. So mm-hmm. can you talk about that? Like in terms of being a beginner and, you know, if we are going to try something new, how to, how to do that, especially as an adult. Yeah. Glad you asked that, that, uh, you have to carry, bring brass, big, carry a big basket to bring something home was said to me multiple times by Frances Hesselbein, one of my favorite characters in the book, who took her first job in her mid-50s and then became this CEO who saved the the Girl Scouts. And and by the way, I changed my Twitter avatar to a picture that I took with her last month. Um, You can see she still works five days a week in Manhattan at the mere age of 103 and a half. Amazing. Um, So amazing. And, And check out that avatar because yeah, like, may we all look that good, you know, at 70. <laughs> um, but that she really made a big impression on me and became something of a personal role model, I have to say. Um, and she would say that frequently, you know, because she didn't have any grand plans, but she would extract a lot of knowledge from whatever she did. And thinking about that, I kind of got stuck with some of my own um, writing in range. I was having trouble figuring out how to structure some things and whatever. I was just in a rut. And so I decided to, uh, take a beginner's writing class in fiction, online fiction writing class, just saw an ad for it, decided to take it. So there, you know, nothing I've ever done matters to anyone. I'm suddenly in this beginner class. And one of the exercises was writing a story using no dialogue and that was kind of a revelation for me because after the sports gene, I'd gone to ProPublica and wrote about non-sports things mostly for a couple of years. And when you get back into that sort of more newsy kind of writing, you use quotes to do a lot of explanation. And I realized I was doing that without really thinking about it. And that often means you don't actually have to understand things the way you should if you want to write them as clearly as possible, which is important in science writing. And it's just sort of lazy. And I realized I went back to the through all the manuscript that I had at the time and stripped a huge number of quotes real that made me realize what things I had to understand better. So, so I couldn't just put them in someone else's voice and replace those with narrative writing. And I think it made it a lot better. And I didn't even, you know, I didn't even realize, um, that I had been leaning on it in that lazy way until something sort of knocked me out of it. And it was this beginner's class. And so then I got kind of intent on taking more of these classes. So like, (laughs) this one sounds funny, but one day I noticed, uh, you know, a bunch of people dressed like wizards basically in my neighborhood and realized something was going on at a hotel a few blocks away. And there was like a Japanese comic book convention going on over there. So I wander over there and sign up for like the beginner's Japanese comic book writing class. And I'm not probably going to write a Japanese comic book, but it's about structure and it's about dialogue and it's about narrative. And if you have, if you're carrying a big basket, like you will bring something home. And I'm now convinced that there's no 
no amount of beginner's writing classes I could take um, and it, from which I won't take something. You know, I'll never stop learning from it. And I'm, I'm really intent on this kind of experimentation now. So I keep what I call a book of small experiments, where it's kind of like when I was a science grad student, I'll put a hypothesis, you know, what skill do I want to learn? What interest do I want to explore? Things like that. And then having it forces me at least monthly to go do something to try to explore that. And then I come back and, you know, reflect on that experience. Um, and so it forces me both to do things because I need to enter something in it at least monthly and to reflect on those things. And and that's and given that I have absolutely no clue what I'm doing next, um, this is sort of an important habit of mine for me. How interesting. That's and it's, you're, you're establishing a range, but still domain specific in some ways, right? Like it, it, you are pen to paper or, or typing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but just pushing yourself and then also forcing yourself into that student role, right? You could have David Epstein's school of writing. I, I'm sure you could go and make that happen. It's very interesting. Yeah. And, and speaking of within the domain, I mean, um, this, I would say the single most important experience I ever had for book writing was doing a bit of film editing. Um, and it was specifically for someone, a friend who got repetitive, I shouldn't laugh at this. He got repetitive stress injury because uh, he was doing too much computer stuff. And so he had to talk me through the editing. So I was just like the the hand, you know, and, and he, w- he was the brain. Um and what I realized when we were doing this is what you do is he has all this film. It was documentary. And um, so the film is like what reporters call your string. You know, it's all your material. You gather your string. And then you cut it into chunks, of use, chunks that you're going to use. The other stuff hits the cutting room floor. And then what you do is you just arrange those chunks so that the out point of one leads to the in point of the next one. And that, that again, was like a real structural revelation for me. So when I'm plotting out what I'm doing, I'm – my outline is actually looking from one out point to the next in point. Like how does the end of this section or chapter um, sort of get someone to the next, you know, in point. And that's how I use section breaks and chapter breaks. And that's like been the the core concept of, of everything I structure. And, and now I see it everywhere. Like you can see master, someone like Wes Craven, right? Who um, his horror films where frankly the material in some of those films I would say is pretty silly but he was so good at structuring that's often you were still like, all right, you know, I still kind of want to come back from commercial break and, and see what's next. And so it was really an experience in, in, in film editing. Um, and then I would say the second most important one was I wrote a script for, for This American Life. And you realize when, when you're doing radio, you have to reinforce science points in a certain way as you go through the story because people can't stop and reread. And I think that's sort of a good principle, and that was really a great, great learning experience. So I'd say my my most important writing learning experiences came from film and radio. Wow, yeah, that's I think motivation for all of us too. I'd say yeah, I think I've had the same experience. Even just doing this podcast for the last three years has completely changed how I write, how I do interviews, everything. Um, but it's you know it was such a different form of journalism, so it's neat yeah. to have to experiment with that. Yeah, definitely. And and I think, again, like people, a lot of even great journalists get stuck in, in these ruts of competence, right, where we all get competent at something. And um, and then we just sort of stick at a good enough level. A great analogy for this is, and again, this is going to sound silly, but um, <laughs> at some point I ended up reading a whole bunch of literature about speed typing, right, and how you get faster at typing. And it turns out that most people just from like doing it will get up to, you know, 50 to 80 words a minute, but then you stick. And the fact is you can get like twice as fast as that, but you have to set a metronome a little faster and follow it no matter how many mistakes you make. And then you, you know, you take the metronome up a little bit every few days and you end up being like twice as fast. 
Um, but it just is sort of this analogy to me that shows like how once we become competent enough, we'll sort of stick. And then you have to start doing things differently in order to keep getting better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the, the rut of competence. And I was thinking about that for for masters athletes in particular, I feel like, uh, you know, when we start hitting this, this middle age, we'll say we kind of settle into, okay, this is where I finish in the pack. This is, you know, this is what my marathon time is going to be like best case scenario, but it's probably going to be around this. Um, how do we get out of the rut of competence as, as you know, older athletes, do you think? Yeah, and I, and I should say, I, when I used that phrase to the economist Russ Roberts, he said, it's actually a hammock of competence because it's so comfortable. Ooh. We stop we stop standing up to look outside for what else we can do. Um, you know, I think for for older athletes, their motivations for doing things are, you know, myriad. <laughs> and so it sort of depends what they're trying to get out of it. But um, I, so one of the blessings in disguise for my own running career was being a walk-on so that I had two years to experiment with my training where nobody cared if I was, you know, I wasn't even getting invited to most of the meets. I wasn't traveling, anything like that. And so I had a chance to burn time. Well, not, it's not burning, it's investing, investing time in experimentation where my race results didn't matter to try to figure out the kind of, um, training that worked best for me. And I think if people haven't done that, it sounds like it's not something you want to do, like burn a season doing that. But I think it's really important. And I, and I think that's also where some of the art of coaching comes in, right? Is the coach, at a certain level, a coach can't tell you exactly what to do to get better. They sort of have to walk hand in hand with you as you try to, you know, triangulate what works best for you. And I think that's why coaches are so impactful. So I think one thing to do is, is try to get someone who can play a bit of a coach role for you. Um, and help you do that experimentation. And, and don't worry about investing a little time in, in experimentation, um, even if it means maybe your results go backward for a little while, because you're, you're trying to learn about the training that best works for you. And I think knowing, you know, you have a section where you sort of comment on, as we get older, we're less open to experience. And, oh, yeah. um, and I think that's, you know, if we can be cognizant of that, I think, you know, at least some of us can do things like what you're doing, or like you say, get a coach or or, you know, take a course of different types. Um, but what about the people who, you know, maybe find that harder? Like they're, they're in that hammock and it's a good hammock and, you know, it, they're to make that change or to, to mix things up or to get that metronome going, I guess, is there, what comes to mind? Yeah. I mean, if they, if, you know, if they're comfortable in it and it's, and it's good for them and they're staying active and they're fine with the things they're doing, you know, I guess. okay. Yeah. Maybe um, that's okay. But, but, you know, especially when we're thinking about lifelong athletes, I think. Um, but I think, you know, if there's someone, say, who's doing 5Ks all the time or something like that, I would say just try to make a little tweak then. Maybe you get into a, a trail run or like a mountain running race or start with very little tweaks. Like you don't have to go totally crazy or maybe see if, you know, you can you can – leverage some of your running and you can get in a triathlon and see if how if you're interested in the cycling and the swimming part of it yeah like i don't think you have to take these flying leaps you can just sort of try something that's a little bit different um from what you're used to for a lot of the for a lot of older athletes i think um they are their training probably usually isn't as polarized as maybe as it should be like they're spending a lot of time going sort of medium hard all the time when in fact if they took some of their easier days easier they could take some of their harder days harder and so if they're staying in that sort of moderately hard zone 
you know, they're sort of moderately easy on the easy days and moderately hard on the hard days. I think one thing to try would be going really easy on the easy days and really hard on the hard days. This was when I was when I when Malcolm Gladwell and I became running buddies, we would do these interval workouts and he he was like, you know, he was a Canadian provincial champ. This this is like how many references to Canada in this show? He was it all comes he was back. A, yeah, he was a Canadian provincial champion um in the mile and um one of the things I noticed with him, the Fifth Avenue Mile was one of the races he would he would look for every year. And um, one of the things I noticed with him was he was doing intervals way too deep into his training cycle, you know, like days before his biggest race, real pounding intervals. I'm like, dude, you got to like you got to back off. Like just try one year resting more in the lead up, you know, and and doing your last serious interval session like 10 days out or, or at least seven days out or something like that. And he did that one year and he ran like I think it was 454 when he was 51 or 52 or something, you know. And that, that mile starts uphill, too. I mean, that's a good performance. Um, and I think he went back to, to, you know, to doing the intervals right before the race the next year. But uh, he was willing to, to tweak his training a little bit. Uh, he, he, you know, in that, that year where I was saying, all right, stop running, uh, you know, 6-minute to 6.30 pace on all your easy days. We'll pound some intervals, but then stop them earlier before the race. So those were sort of smaller tweaks within the things he was doing anyway that I think made a good difference for for one of his races. Yeah, and I mean there, we have that time, right? Like we, you can no one's, you know, most of us are not getting paid, like you say, we're not NFL players who, you know, the clock's ticking or something. Yeah, um, you know, we can play with that and see if it helps, right? Yeah, and and you don't have to if you're an endurance athlete, which I think is probably the largest component of of masters athletes, is my guess um, in the world. You don't have to deteriorate the way that you might think, right? You can look at there's like a cool case study of a rower who, I think he medaled in five successive Olympics. I think um, Danish guy, if I recall, and you could see like his you know his his maximum heart rate and things like that would come down but it would be compensated for by other physiological mechanisms like his cardiac output and things like that and so if you keep going you know you don't have to age real fast so i don't think you should feel too much of a sense of 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 urgency about spending a little time in experimentation right right and you're still you know it's still running it's still like the difference should not be that much in those minor yeah. tweaks yeah well, we've kept you. I can hear uh, your baby is. Oh, you you can hear him now. Sorry, I that's just, okay. Yeah, that's okay. We're we're at time. We've taken up your time, so I I do appreciate that a ton. Uh, did you want to leave uh, the audience with anything? And certainly any of your your social stuff. We'll get links to the book and and whatnot in the uh, show notes for sure. But anything to leave us with? Um, yeah, one of my favorite quotes from the book is by a woman named Herminia Ibarra, who since we've talked about like changing and trying new things, is is. She studies how people make career transitions, uh, successfully or unsuccessfully. And one of the phrases she used that I loved was, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she meant was there's all this sort of personality quizzes and and career gurus that might want to convince you that you can just introspect and understand your abilities and your interests. But in fact, what the psychological research shows is that our insight into ourselves is actually constrained by our experience, by our previous experiences, and that you actually have to do stuff uh, to find out who you are. So she likes to say, act and then think. And I think that's sort of a, uh, a powerful message that, that I think about a lot myself, um, about learning who I am in practice as opposed to having a theory. And that I actually have to try things I haven't tried before to learn more about myself. And so that's, that's an approach, um, you know, I take both in my physical and my mental endeavors. Yes. I found 
the, the both the career viewpoint and then I guess it for me it transfers a bit into the the sport so I found that uh my favorite part of the book actually. oh no every other episode he's either retiring from <laughs> yeah, sport or it's, changing it's all careers <laughs> but we're gonna pivot now it's more of a pivot that's right that's right see there's this part in the book where I talk about the part about like good quitting right and the the army had this great success instead of calling it quitting they've created something they call talent-based branching where they allow people to try different career tracks and a coach helps them then figure out how well it fit them and they try others and others and others until they triangulate a good fit so I think it's great instead of calling it like you know rapid quitting while learning about yourself i'm just going to call it talent-based branching <laughs> there you go tm oh right boy there. right there all right <laughs> uh so we'll link to all your socials did you want to just uh give us what handles and stuff people can can follow you at but we'll oh maybe that's what you're asking for sorry sure. instead of like a philosopher no no, no, no i was that was perfect oh. perfect oh uh yeah i'm at david i'm at david epstein on twitter and david epstein.com on the internets perfect Thank you so much for your time, David. Yeah, this is awesome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. In. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, you can check out my stuff over at theoutdooredit.com or by following me on Instagram and Twitter at Molly J. Herford. And you can check out Peter's coaching, training plans, blogs, all that fun stuff over at smartathlete.ca or by following him on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Glassford. And if you want to support this show and other awesome podcasts, please check out WideAnglePodium.com for show info, other podcasts, bonus content, and to become a donating member so you can get all of that rad behind-the-scenes content and help keep shows like this on the air. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast and all the information that we're bringing to you every single week... Uh, do us a solid and pop into iTunes to leave us a rating and review. It takes you about two seconds. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your phone. And it really helps us out. Thanks so much. And we will see you next week. <laughs>